Hi, this is Chip, and welcome to a time dilation episode of the Two Minute Time Lord podcast. This is when our little Doctor Who podcast becomes not so little after all. I invite some friends over to talk about uh, stuff that's happening in the Doctor Who universe, and one of the really, really big things that's happening is a long-awaited book, Queers Dig Time Lords, edited by Michael D. Thomas and Sigrid Ellis, and I've got them and a couple of contributors to Queers Dig Time Lords here. Let's go around in order. First up, we have uh, Michael Damian Thomas. He is a uh, writer, editor, managing editor of the Hugo Award-nominated Apex magazine. He's associate-edited uh, a bunch of Mad Norwegian Press books, including the Hugo Award-winning, there's a trend here, Chicks Dig Time Lords. He is the co-editor, along with John Klima and Lynn Thomas, of the upcoming anthology Glitter and Mayhem. That's coming out from Apex in September. And we're going to be doing lots of lengthy bios here for the next couple of minutes, listeners, so you're going to have to uh, just strap in. Michael, how are you tonight, sir? I am doing well. How are you, Chip? I am great. Thank you so much for uh, helping arrange this group uh, to talk about this really important book. Sigrid Ellis, you are a writer of fiction, nonfiction, and comics, an editor. Uh, You are an air traffic controller, which sounds almost as stressful as editing a major book. You co-edited the Hugo-nominated Chicks Dig Comics with Lynn Thomas. Sigrid, how are you tonight? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. Uh, Contributors, uh, we have no stranger to the Two Minute Time Lord podcast, my good friend Eric Stagnick of Doctor Who, The Writer's Room, and um, what is that other podcast? (laughs) The Doctor Who Book Club podcast, Jim. Oh, I'm sorry. The, all those writing podcasts seem to just sort of blur together in my yeah, mind. Yeah, they're, they're the so. bookish, writerly, nerdy ones. <laughs> Eric is very important to this book, as you will all find out very, very shortly. How are you doing tonight, my friend? I'm I'm doing well. It's so glad to be back. I'm glad to have you here. And then somebody I have a tiny, tiny, infinitesimal bit of history with because I was actually briefly involved in a fantastic online um, semi-prosine that... She founded, in, in uh, the speculative fiction, Strange Horizons. Uh, we have Marianne Mohanraj. She's a professor at the University of Illinois in Chicago in creative writing and post-colonial lit and pop culture, but she founded Strange Horizons. She's the director of the Speculative Literature Foundation, and after being published in several other genres, her first science fiction novel is coming out. Uh, when is that coming out, Marianne? Um, I think we're aiming for June, so soon. And what's the what's the title? Tell me about it. Uh, it's called The Stars Change. It's a book. I don't know if it's going to be a novel or a novella. We're doing final edits, and it's right on the borderline. Uh, it started off as erotica. It ends up a war novel, and it is about South Asians who go into space, colonize a university planet, interstellar war is declared, there are aliens, and lots of sex. So not a lot going on there. Well, it started off being sort of a fun sex novel, and it kind of morphed a little bit. So Many people listening to this podcast may not know it, but you are literally one of the first bloggers on the internet. It's true. According to the Online Journal History Project, I, was, I think I've got, I'm one of the five first ones that still have blogs going. That, that's amazing. That's, that's the, <laughs> um, the ongoing erratic diary at mamohanraj.com. I think it just means I don't know when to stop. 
<laughs> well, I'm glad to have all four of you with me tonight to talk about Queer Stig Time Lords, which is published by Mad Norwegian Press. And uh, when's it coming out? It will be out on June 4th, but if you're at the Wisconsin Convention, Madison, Wisconsin, over Memorial Day weekend, there will be copies available from A Room of One's Own. We are actually doing our whole launch party there. Fantastic. Now, Queer Stig Time Lords, uh, Mad Norwegian Press had had a lot of success uh, with uh, sort of progenitor books in the what they call the Geek Girl Chronicles series, uh, which began with Lynn Thomas and Tara O'Shea's uh, Chicks Dig Time Lords. Tell me a little bit about where this book came from. Eric, do you want to start? I was going to say, that's that's Eric's question to field. Yeah. Oh, oh God. Uh, it actually kind of starts with you, Chip, as you well know. You're, you're leading me into talking about you, as you often do. What? Uh, <laughs> it, it was uh, Gallifrey 2010, yes. it would have been, I suppose. Yes. We, yeah, it was when Chicks of uh, Tumblers came out, and... Chip, at a quick conversation after, actually shouted in the hallway, I think, just shouted the name Queer's Dick Time Lords. I and have I no, I have no memory of that, Eric. You have no memory of that? I have no memory of that. That's what happened, and then it sat, literally, that was, that was, the, that was the entire conversation, was just shouting the name of a possible book. He could have said, you know, people from Zimbabwe like Time Lord. You know, it could have been anything. It was just sort of, hey, we can do this with other things. And so it sat until... Um, over the uh, coming times, I got to know people who actually knew people, and and one of those people who knew people was uh, Deb Stanish, uh, co-editor of uh, Chicks and Rebel Time and We Denistas, both for Mad Norwegian, part of the Geek Girl Chronicles, and she uh, essentially drew the idea out of me, and while we were having wine, a lot of wine, one evening at, at Gallifrey, I guess 2011. That never happens. Um, and then the next day I find myself talking to, uh, the publisher of that Norwegian, Lars, and being told to pitch this book idea that wasn't really a full-fledged idea at the time. It was still mainly just a title with a few. And so I quickly had to think on my feet and, uh, to his either eternal credit or eternal shame. I'm not sure which, uh, Lars went for the idea, but I quickly with, and I quickly made the caveat, but I am not an editor. I will gladly write something if if asked, but I am not capable of that. And so there it there the story leaves me essentially is and then it and becomes Michael and Sigrid's story. Lars asked me while I was still working on Chickstig Comics if I would be interested in picking up a second book and after some discussion about what of the possible options were available I said I would do Queer Stig Time Lords. It was a fairly easy conversation to have, except that I had one caveat, which is I am a fan of longstanding. I am most assuredly a queer. I do dig Time Lords. I have never been in Doctor Who fandom. I am a fan of the property without being in the fandom. And my caveat to Lars was... I will do this, I will happily, I will herd all of your cats, not a problem, but I need someone who knows Doctor Who fandom to be the point person on this, that whole angle of things. I mean, the entire, the entire idea behind the Geek Girl Chronicles is we get people from inside whatever fanish property we are talking about to talk about 
their love of the thing they do. And we get people from outside it, uh, fans, uh, science fiction and fantasy writers, to also write about the, their love of the thing they do. And I didn't know the first thing about how to get the people from inside Doctor Who fandom. So I said to Lars that I would do it if Michael would be my co-editor. Michael? Yes. And, that, and that's where I come in. At, well, in some ways, I've been around for a while just because I had been the associate editor on, on the other Geek Girl Chronicle books with Lynn. So I had been there and had helped behind the scenes with Lynn and Tara, just, you know, with the establishment of the whole, you know, basically, you know, figuring out how this whole thing worked, the model of it, how we were going to do it. So I, I knew how to do this. It was, and, you, you know, I know that's one of the things Sigrid told me at the time was that she really wanted to give me the opportunity, which was extremely wonderful of her to finally have my name in front of a book. So, you know, I, I agreed. And then we started to sit down and make our lists. And, and then finally, uh, coming up in just a few days, after uh, a lot of years of planning and cajoling and editing, it's uh, finally in print. And it joins a long line of books uh, about the queer and gay experience of uh, Doctor Who and Doctor Who fandom, right? That would be no. <laughs> <laughs> that would be the leading question. That was one of the first things I found out when I started being introduced to some of the, the people we were asking and the people who volunteered and the people who turned in these uh, really fantastic essays about their experience in Doctor Who fandom. One of the first things I realized, and I think Michael and I actually had this conversation at some point, I'm like, well, if all of these people have been in this fandom for all of this time, why are we making the book now? Why hasn't it been done before? And and that would be a good question. It, it was an, it was one of those oddities, you know. When I joined Doctor Who fandom in the nineties, it was almost just assumed. I mean, it was a fandom at that point where kind of the stereotype was that you were a gay or bisexual man, and you know, if you were part of the family, there, you know, that that obviously wasn't quite true. But there was a, a huge number of of queer fans at the time, and many of them were running conventions, running fanzines, writing books, but nobody was really talking about the, the queer experience and how, you know, it, it was one of those things that might be mentioned in the occasional fanzine article, but certainly no one was really, it, it, was, it was more of a bar kind of nodding along going, yep, there sure are a lot of us here, and then they'd be moving on to arguing about whether the unit stories took place in the 70s or 80s or whatever. You know, and then the, new, the show came back, and there was the whole Russell T. Davis queer agenda going on around us. But still, talking about queerness in Doctor Who was not something that was really being analyzed or, or discussed that much. So it was something that was always around. And, you know, and, and I also, when I, when I did the research, realized it wasn't even just with Doctor Who that very few media properties had had any major kind of memoir discussion about you know, why queer fans would relate to that property. You know, that it, it's funny that you say that when the show came back, there still wasn't a lot of conversation about it. I think that part of the the angle that, that I bring as a editor and as a fan of the work is that I, I tend to come to these properties from the fangirl, fan fiction, Tumblr, live journal end of fandom. And believe you me, in those circles, <laughs> when Doctor Who came back, Marianne, I know you can back me up on this. People <laughs> were talking about the queerness of the show. 
I I agree. I mean, and I feel like I do have to say, like, I don't I don't want to claim this was the very first one because there, you know, there's that um, there's that 2010 anthology that Jed and I cite in our piece, uh, illuminating Torchwood essays on narrative character and sexuality, mm-hmm. and there there are definitely pieces in there that are very much you know sort of along the lines of what I was thinking about. So it's a little more of an academic book, and it's not. You know, it's not solely queer focused, um, but some of the essays are are looking at the material. Um, I'd like to I'd like to step back for a second. Um, and, you know, the, the conversations sort of immediately started off here about talking about the fandom and the fan culture around the show. But uh, if I if I remember from my reading uh, correctly, this book is about f- maybe 50, 50, 60, 40 talking about the people in the culture of the show and also talking about uh, queer readings of the show itself, right? Shows, plural. That's right, shows. Yeah. Um, actually, actually, let's unpack that a little bit. What do you mean by plural shows? I mean, some people chose to talk about Doctor Who, others about uh, Torchwood. I think there were a couple of mentions in individual essays of Sarah Jane Adventures, perhaps, but I don't think anyone chose to focus on that specifically. And a few, uh, and, and uh, a few pieces that talked about the difference in, in perspectives and give, offering different readings of the classic series versus the new series. Yes, if you want to count those as two different shows, uh, you know that there's there's that as well. Let me ask the uh, just the the really basic question: Is Doctor Who a queer show? Because I think that there are some differing responses even within the book itself. Chip, don't you have to define queer first? <laughs> well, and, and this is and this is something that I have uh, this is something that I'm difficult I have difficulty with um, because I, for for example, this was my first introduction to the acronym quilt bag. I had never mm-hmm. seen it before uh, before I read this book. Um, uh, I'm pretty sure that though that uh, different uh, mem- different contributors defined the word in different ways, didn't they? I think that one of the one of the most basic answers that I have to offer about all conversations of this, sh- of this sort is a deeply unsatisfying answer, which is, I think people derive from the fictions they take in the things they need that are meaningful to them. I think that if you were, you know, a gay teenager in the late early 1980s, you may have found the television series Emergency to be a queer show because that's what you needed at the time. Hmm. Anybody else remember that? Okay. I can, um, <laughs> I can, I, I can actually hear the uh, alarm <laughs> siren in See, the back of my I, head. See, I know, I know. Uh, I think that, so I think that my answer to you would be once the fiction leaves the hands of the creators, the creator has no control over what happens when the rubber meets the road and the audience gets a hold of it. I think it is a different question to ask whether Doctor Who is intended as a queer show or whether it is received as a queer show. I think it is definitely received as a queer show. The evidence is all over our book. That's what the book is. Mm-hmm. It's the evidence. As to the intentions, I've never talked to the creators of the show. I can't really speak for them. And different contributors to the book have uh, different perspectives on where the contributors were coming from. Um, 
the piece by John Richards, for example, is very critical of Russell T. Davies saying, yes, the force behind all this was a gay man, but to say Russell T. Davies was pushing a gay agenda is like saying Barbara Cartland was a feminist warrior and argues that RTD was presenting gay characters' relationships as second class. That's uh, that's John Richards' The Heterosexual Agenda um, at uh, page... Um, page 193 for um, anybody uh, who's gotten an advanced copy of this or wants to save this for when the book <laughs> is in their hands. I'm so glad you have the have the copy open in front of you. <laughs> I, I'm behaving. I'm a good editor. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, um, but uh, but yeah, different, like you said, Sigrid, different readings um, entirely. Um, I want to uh, follow up on that with uh, a reference to uh, Marianne's uh, piece with Jed Hartman uh, celebrating Captain Jack, um, squeeing over Captain Jack. <laughs> and that, that, isn't that how you pretty much summed up Captain Jack squee? Isn't that the uh, abstract of your article? Well, that was definitely when, when I was first saw this call and thought about writing something, my sort of initial response was, well, that's all I really want to say is he's awesome, squee. You know, like what... Do, do I need to write an essay about this? But, you know, the more I talked to Jed about it, the more we sort of realized that there were specific things to squeeze about. So then it ended up getting long. So. <laughs> right. Uh, tell, me, tell me a little bit about um, how Captain Jack uh, resonates, uh, resonated for you and Jed um, as a character in the Doctor Who universe and uh, as sort of an illustration of what the show had become. Well, for me, certainly, I mean, I identify as by a... I've dated men and women in my time, and I was just really delighted to see a character who was presented as bi, um, a male character presented as bi, which was very unusual in television, but also one who was, who was presented joyfully, right? That it was not a tragic queer character who was going to have to die by the end of the play or the movie or whatever it was, that for quite a long time, and it doesn't, it doesn't last forever, but for a long time, Jack is just having a great time. He's, he's, uh, uh, there, there's so many good lines about this, right, um, which we, we quote a bunch of them in the essay, and I don't want to go on at length, but there's, uh, he's, he's very, he's flirtatious, he's fun, um, he doesn't take anything too seriously. Totally unapologetic. Really unapologetic, right? And it's, and it's presented as sort of, like, the doctor is not surprised by this. The doctor is not phased, right? This is, there's almost an implication that in the era that Jack comes from, this is, if not the norm, at least incredibly accepted, right? He's not, he's not forcing it, which was lovely. It, it reminded me of sort of, oh, I don't know, my time living in the Bay Area where I would be, I was writing erotica and hanging out with a lot of sex writers and poly people and we were. I was writing an, a story for an anthology for Good Vibrations at one point for Down There Press, their publisher, and uh, it, we used to talk about the Good Vibrations love bubble, which was just this, you know, the, this circle of people who were very sex positive um, and and relaxed about it. You know, it wasn't a constant battle. So, so seeing this character in Doctor Who um, and then leading leading his own series. Um, that was a moment of recognition for you? Yeah, it was, you know, and it was in part because it was, you know, I've always looked to science fiction for that, right? But often it's almost a sort of a forced 
search in the sense of, you know, I watched classic Trek as a kid. I saw Spock. He's half human. He's half Vulcan. As an immigrant brown child in America, I identify with that, right? Like I make sort of this leap to um, identify with the way Spock feels. Whereas with Jack, I don't have to make the leap. He's, he's right there with me, which is awesome. <laughs> Now, I'd like to use uh, the character of Captain Jack as sort of uh, a lens to look at this whole book. Michael and Sigrid, you had different articles in this uh, in this piece, sort of taking the same subject, but in a completely different way. I'm looking at Tanya Huff's article where she complains a little bit about how the new series has developed over the years, but she talks about Captain Jack as, quote, bordering on being the classic slutty bisexual stereotype. And then she goes on to uh, talking about the series becoming more heteronormative uh, under Stephen Moffat. Then you've got uh, Rochelle Maltese. Um, uh, Rochelle, I'm sorry, I've probably mispronounced your last name again. Um, and uh, she's talking about the suffering that uh, Captain Jack goes through that really connected her to aspects of her world that she was living in. So bringing the question to Michael and Sigrid, how did you meld all of these sorts of different perspectives of Doctor Who and its offshoots into this? And could you talk a little bit about some of the clashing uh, opinions that are in this book? Basically, when we started out, we gave, when we, we, we tried to choose writers and we're trying to balance the entire book and we wanted to give them as much leeway as possible without necessarily too much rehashing of the same ground but it's obvious that Captain Jack is just this extremely significant character to so many people that he's had this major effect and, and to some ways it, it, it's unfair to the character and to John Barrowman because so much weight is now to when, when you are first out I mean and yes he's not the first bisexual character but to be such a prominent character on a science fiction on two science fiction shows it carries a lot of weight of expectations for the entire lgbtq community behind what they want him to be what they don't want him to be so we wanted to give each you know the writer the leeway to kind of talk about how he worked for them and i and you see some essays like rochaline's where it's very clear he helped rochaline get through you know major you know things in her life and, and discover who she was and Meanwhile, other people were much more critical about how the character was handled. You know, even in, in Marianne's very squeakful essay, Jed was not particularly happy with some of the ways he was handled, unfortunately. You know, it, it's, it's tough to put so much on a character like that, which is why, you know, we want more characters like that, not just a character, which was a, sometimes a positive and negative, depending on how they handled it, unfortunately. Right. Um, and certainly there were arguments, and we've talked about it on my podcast uh, before, closer to the time, the the whole fan drama over um, the fate of Ianto and uh, whether that was a positive or a negative portrayal of a gay relationship and whether, uh, as with comics and women in refrigerators, if uh, a gay love relationship always must end in death and suffering and things like that, so many... There, there is no monolithic look at, um, at at this character or that issue in this story. Backing up a little bit from that specifically and talking about the editorial angle on it, I am glad we got so many essays that talked about the character of Captain Jack in different ways because a huge part of the entire Geek Girl Chronicle series and uh, Queer's Dig Time Lords, which 
I feel weird calling it part of the Geek Girl Chronicle series, but, you know, I'm sure Lars will come up with something to handle that. But the part of the entire purpose of the series is to provide people with a window or a mirror into this thing they love to show them that they are not alone, that there are people out there in this fandom like them to say, this is all of us and us includes you out there reading this book. And for Captain Jack to be such a controversial character, I really hoped that we would get a diversity of views on him specifically so that everyone reading the book would have an opportunity to find something that reflects their view on that. Um, as far as the diversity in the book goes overall, I'm still fretting about certain aspects of it that I really wish we could have done uh, a little bit better on. But as far as covering old who versus new who or uh, female characters versus male characters or um, uh, the the issues surrounding Captain Jack or whether or not the Doctor is a sexual character, I feel pretty pleased with the range of opinions we we got on those topics and the articulacy of those opinions as people became very eloquent to express their views clearly and with the the passion that I know the people reading this book will relate to and share. Right. Well, while also making sure, and this was this is of course one of the hallmarks of the series, is that you know, and it's in the title, this is a celebration. So there is always a fine line. Because, you know, when you love something, you can be very disappointed in it. So we, we didn't want, you know, and even though we put some pieces in where there is criticism, we tried to make sure that all of our contributors balance that with, you know, relating why they still love Doctor Who and why this still means so much to them, you know, as, that, a, as a viewer. That is such a tricky part in, in fandom, and it's uh, such a tricky part with, with this series. It's easy when something you love has disappointed you in some way to focus on that and to talk about that and to talk about what what you had hoped for and how you were let down. And um, one of the things we, Michael and I, really worked hard on with the, with the contributors was like, okay, I, I relate. In many cases, I would open an email with, you know, I absolutely agree with you, but can you focus a little more on some of the things that still keep you engaged because I, as a Doctor Who fan, that's one of the things I always want to talk to people about. It's like, yes, I know that that aspect of this latest episode was disappointing, but are you going to watch the next one? And if you're going to watch the next one, why? It sounds like there's an opportunity for a follow-up book, uh, much like Chicks Unravel Time was a follow-up to Chicks Dig Time Lords. This is the celebration. Perhaps the next book could be the series-by-series um, series analysis or whatever it is to... Um, to really, to really tear into that. Although uh, some, you do have some essays that do do a very good job of um, looking at what's currently happening in Doctor Who with a critical eye. Yeah, well, I think we tried. We, we, we certainly, when we made all these books, there was always a balance between just the different types of essays we wanted. You know, some people are going to talk. It's going to be very much a memoir about their experiences in fandom. For others, especially like with the professional science fiction fantasy writers or the actors, it's going to be a little bit more focused on more analytical thoughts about the series and how they relate to it as creators. 
or as being participants in the series. I would like to change directions a little bit because my good friend Eric has been uncharacteristically quiet. Possibly he's been sitting on his mute button again. I have just been letting the people who deserve the spotlight have it. Well, I'm... For (laughs) once in my damn life. (laughs) I am forcing the spotlight upon you. Uh, First of all, as you've been listening to all this, Eric... um, you, you you were the catalyst for this book, and um, you've got a uh, po- you've got an article that we're uh, going to talk about in just a second about uh, the world that you and I live in in Doctor Who fandom um, and podcasting. But um, first of all, is this the book that y- that you envisioned when um, you talked to Lars? And second of all, why do you think that it took so long for this story to be told? Uh, the, the first, the first question is actually, uh, quite easy to answer. No, it's not the book I first envisioned because it's so much better. <laughs> you know, oh. my puny little <laughs> human mind couldn't envision the quality of essays and range of contributions. And this is, this is the consistently amazing and wondrous and baffling thing about being a member of the queer community is that I am not a member of every part of it. It is such a large all-inclusive by how you define it yourself sort of grouping that there are parts where I read it and I, I might as well be, you know, a straight uh, cisgendered guy who's never met anybody not like him because I feel like there's just as much otherness, if you will, at times for me in the queer community, even though I'm a member of it because I'm a very particular kind of queer. I'm a gay guy, a gay white guy for that. So it's even... The variance is so broad and so fascinating and so rich and so well done that it's way better than the book. Like, thank God I said I didn't know how to edit a book because I (laughs) shudder to think what piece of garbage I would have produced. Sigrid and Michael, you saved us all. Yes. (laughs) Eric, the additional checks are in the mail. (laughs) (laughs) Ka-ching! Um... Yeah, what was the second question that I avoided answering because it was too complicated? Well, uh, yeah, what 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 took what took the world so long? What took what, this? Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, and who, and if you want if you knows. want to dovetail into your essay, I think this is a actually a remarkable uh, opportunity for you to do that. Yeah, yeah, it is. I I think I think part of what took so long, and it does dovetail in, is my my experience with fandom is very much been focused on podcasting and conventions or specifically Gallifrey, but also other conventions, Chicago Tardis and uh, a few others here and there. So my first Gallifrey, I was on the gay panel as it was referred to. And it was me, two other gay white guys and possibly a fourth gay white guy. I'm not actually sure about who the fourth member was because I don't think they ever spoke. Um, the next year, the essentially the same panel, which had a different title that year, was me, a genderqueer, bisexual woman, a uh, older lesbian, and uh, an asexual. And I was like, okay, suddenly fandom became no longer the sort of quote-unquote stereotypical 80s that Michael was talking about, the 80s, 90s sort of, you know, gay bisexual guys, and became this much more gender balanced or at least the representation became more gender balanced and more diverse in terms of sexual identity and gender identity. And I think at a certain point, that critical mass, that understanding that these elements had always been there in fandom, but with the evolution of society, 
going alongside a pace, essentially with the evolution within fandom of the acceptance of these diversities, made it just sort of finally inevitable that this book, when presented on a hurried Sunday afternoon, would get a yes, as opposed to maybe a few years before it would have gotten no, because it would have been like, well, who's the market? You know, the market, when I pitched the idea was to Lars, was walking all around him. It was, it was right. obvious to him. Oh, this is who will buy this book. These people. All of these people here will be curious about this book. And so, yeah, I think it's just some, some ideas have a time <laughs> that, uh, that needs to be approached. Um, and it's funny that it is, you're right, that does segue into my essay because my essay, I, I am a podcaster. Um, I have been podcasting off and on. That almost sounds like formats. an Alcoholics Anonymous declaration. I, well, as you well know, it is, <laughs> it is, once you're in, it's very hard to get back out. I thought I was out briefly and, and then I got pulled back in like Pacino in Godfather 3. Um, so for about four years now, um, and as I, as I say in my essay, the only reason, not the only reason, but really the only reason I am a podcaster is because the Torchwood Yanto, uh, Children of Earth question came up, um, and Radio Free Scaro, one of the great granddaddy legacy Doctor Who podcasts, as it were, wanted to do a special on it and they didn't feel qualified. And so they sought out among their fans, people who they knew, might be able to come in and speak at least somewhat intelligently about uh, gay issues and coming out and gay television trips and things like that. And so that was my first experience podcasting. And so the podcasting and being gay and being a member of the queer community are so intricately linked in my mind that when I was asked, once the book got commissioned, when I was asked to write an essay, it was, and, uh, you know, the idea was you can do podcasting, but you don't have to do podcasting. I was like, no, I'll totally do podcasting. This is, I can talk about this. I can say something about this. And the fact that, um, while the community at large, as the book illustrates is very queer, the podcast community perhaps is slightly less so. And so I will I don't think my essay ends up having a kind of harsh critical tone but there it, there are some strident sentences at the very least in the uh in the essay where there's a bit of a call to arms yeah and you said you said slightly less and that's uh that, that that's that's being a little gentle uh compared to the compared to both the the text of what you read wrote in the essay and you know our own experience um yeah. i mean as far as uh, GLBT presence in podcasting, I mean, we we've only recently had a bit of an explosion in female podcasters in the Doctor Who universe, and that strikes me as bizarrely out of sync with the world that this very book writes about—the diversity of people creating and being involved in Doctor Who compared to a subset of people talking about it. No, I think that, I think that's exactly right, and I think. Um my essay was written long enough ago that I feel like I want to go in and update some numbers about things. And I want to mention this, you know, the all female podcast verity and things like that. But, um, but the underlying facts, I think remain sadly unchanged that this epic flourishing we're having of podcasts where everybody has a podcast. It's like Oprah with the cars, um, <laughs> somehow doesn't extend to the hundreds of people who came to those uh, LGBT Doctor Who fandom panels and will be interested in this book. And it's sort of, you know, it's a really, 
sort of silly and very self-important thing to say, but I can do that sometimes. Um, I really hope that some kid, some grown-up, some 50-year-old, some grandparent reads this book and thinks, that's it, I'm doing a podcast. You know, and if one new podcast comes out that's doing a queer take on Doctor Who because of this book, even in a small way, then that's a major win. Then, then your work is done. Is that what you're saying? Then I can I can take my ball and go home. Yes. You the the hell you say you've got some great you've got some great podcasts of your own there. I'd like to ask a general <laughs> question there uh, to, to the four of you because I don't think Marianne, Eric, your essays I don't believe they really touched on this and. Uh, Sigrid and Michael, you got you were you two were the you know you you two were behind the curtain. Um, you've got the uh, introduction, but not a whole lot in there. I wanted to ask you all about how how the four of you engaged with the show uh, over the years. When when you discovered Doctor Who, how big a part of your life was it when you uh, started watching it, and did that intersect with your identity in any way when you started, uh, classic or new or whatever? And I'd like to start with you, Marianne, because we haven't had a chance to get back to you. And I know that you're a, you were a science fiction fan way back from college. Your your blog said so. Um, oh, I, I've been a, a science fiction fan since I was a little girl. <laughs> so it goes way, way back. I was a Trekkie with classic Trek um, back in the day. Um, how, how did, how did yeah. Doctor Who fit into that universe? For you, so you know, I, I did not see the original Trek, uh, the original Doctor Who. I, I came in on the reboot. I loved it, so I've watched all of the reboot from you know what is it, the Eighth Doctor on, um, and all of Torchwood and all of Sarah Jane Adventures. Uh, I was very sad when that was canceled because um, I thought it was great. Uh, I, I like it a lot. I don't. Typically, I live in Chicago. I may try and make it to Chicago TARDIS this year, given the anthology, but I, I haven't been to any Doctor Who conventions yet, and I'm not really connected to the fandom. I Generally, I'm more of a sort of regular science fiction fan. I, mm-hmm. I go to WizCon every year and um, some of the other conventions. So what I really like about Doctor Who, um, I mean, obviously the time travel is cool. <laughs> um, you know, there's this... I was trying to touch on this earlier, and I'm not sure I really did a good job with it. But, And maybe it's because it's a British thing rather than a Hollywood thing. But I feel like they're kind of a step ahead of us in uh, how they handle queer material, right? In their willingness to put, you know, male-male kisses on the screen. You know, and not to say that there isn't far to go. Obviously, there's far to go. Um, but sometimes it's just a relief to see that somebody is comfortable with with a little bit more than, than we can get here. Um, and, you know, it's interesting what Eric was saying about a call to arms. I, I, I've been thinking about this a lot, how in science fiction fandom, um, I'm thinking about things like Race Fail 09 and so on. Like there's often a, a bit of a split between people who have been in fandom longer and or maybe people who are older. I'm not sure I can really pin this down, but it's sort of a liberal radical split, right? Which is that if you've been around for 20 years, 30 years, you look at what a show is doing and yes, you'd like it to do more, but you're so grateful that they're doing anything at all that, you know, sometimes that, that pleasure and that gratitude is, is sort of enough for you. And, and I, I find it really useful when I go to Wisconsin and, 
um, am reminded that there are young radical people ready to be angry <laughs> and say and kind of push it to go further. Um, I think that's that's great. Um, I don't, does that make sense? It, it does. I'm, I'm reminded of uh, Babylon 5 in the 90s when uh, the mm-hmm. Ivanova and uh, Talia characters, where their relationship was so far into the subtext that you, you, had, you had to go on to um, news groups to have yeah. it spelled out for you that, uh, that uh, Ivanova was bisexual, that Talia was bisexual, that they were in a relationship, whereas on camera... There's long looks and my good dear my good dear friend and things like that. Compare and contrast that to Kiss Kiss Bang Bang second series of Torchwood, where uh, Captain Jack and Captain John are in a clinch in front of a, a electronic fireplace image on the back wall, and it's as campy as Get Out. It's yeah no I mean even I mean even even in the when we're first introduced to to J- Captain Jack right there's this line that Judd and I quote where you know. They're talking about what a what a immoral person he is, what a bad captain he is, and and Doctor Who says something about the Doctor says something about, um, you know he he you know this captain would have been defrocked, and and Jack says I quit, nobody takes my frock, you know, and it's just it's hilarious and it's charming, um, and it, it's it's also just so blatant, and I I was sort of like shocked and pleased at the same time, and you know we have panels at Wisconsin, but what do you do when you know, the thing you love is also problematic, and how do you handle that? And and it's, obviously, this is a big, ongoing question. I just got into a big debate with people yesterday, I think, about, oh, I'm going to try and avoid spoilers here, but about the main bad guy in the new Star Trek film um, and and some, some race issues there. Um, okay, I hope that was vague enough. But, I think you succeeded. <laughs> um, but... Um, but, you know, like, so I can be, I can get into those debates, and I do get into those debates, but on the other hand, I'm going to be there this weekend seeing it regardless, right? So, Well, um, well Sigrid, I, Sigrid, didn't you write something recently, and you'll have to remind me where it was, it might have been on your blog, uh, you wrote something recently about, uh, oh, I can't, I can't remember the phrase, but how just because you recognize that there's something problematic does not mean you have to find it unenjoyable. That would be the essay I wrote for Apex Magazine. Right. Um, Kicking Ass, Taking Names, Bubblegum Optional is, I believe, the the title. Hmm. Um, and it is about choosing to like problematic things, as uh, Marianne just said. I, Marianne, it's funny, I was just having an email conversation today pre uh, as a preamble to WISCON extolling the virtues of the uh, fans, people in fandom who are new to fandom, whether they are young or not, but new to fandom Mm -hmm. people and how they care so much. And I'm like, thank God for them. That lets me know that the things I care about are thriving and not dying because we are still attracting new people. And yes, that means that I, at the age of 40, have to listen to some of the same conversations that I was having when I was 20, but there are new people having them and wrestling with these same issues, whether in Doctor Who or a more broader science fiction or genre fandom. And I'm so happy to see it because it's hard work. It's hard work to look at something and say... This is not what it should be. How do we appreciate it and criticize it at the same time? 
Yeah, I'm reminded of this. I, I had a conversation with Ellen Datlow at a convention once when we were talking about feminism, and this was right after, I think, the whole um, Harlan Ellison thing at the Hugos that year. Um, oh, yeah. And, you know, and, and I was sort of, I was outraged, and I was sort of like, why aren't you outraged? And she was, she, you know, she's like, she'd been doing that for 10 years longer. She'd been fighting the fights, right? And, yeah. and, I, and I think there is a certain exhaustion that comes in and so it's it's great to have people coming in with the the energy to be exhausted to be to be outraged and the new perspectives um and and you know and you know i look at how far we've come and i'm like oh this is great we've made such progress and they come in and with a new perspective and they just they see how far there is to go um and sometimes i need to be reminded of that it's not even just that i'm tired it's that i you know you you swim in this water and you mm-hmm. get used to it, right? And you, you, you can't see it. Like you, I also came to Doctor Who with the new Doctor Who. Um, uh, Eccleston, uh, the ninth Doctor, was the, my first Doctor. Uh, and I, I came to the show because I thought, aha, I have never been able to get into Doctor Who because it has this, you know, gazillion year canon and I am an X-Men fan from way way back which means I understand how hard it is to get into (laughs) a gazillion year canon right Mm -hmm. so I'm like you know when I heard that they had a new doctor and they were kind of revamping it and they're I'm like great I know that that will be the entry for me and I liked the first episode and I liked all the original episodes of, of that of that first ninth doctor season I thought they were great and then the Captain Jack episode, the intro. I can't remember the title of the episode. Somebody chime in. The Empty Child. No. Empty Child, thank you. <laughs> the moment that got me. I'd been out for forever at, at that point. You know, Doctor Who was not a pivotal part of my queer identity. I brought my queer identity to Doctor Who. But the moment that got me about that episode where I said, all right, you've got me. You have won some credit. I will watch you even if you screw up a few times on something that I care about was when Jack, when it was made clear that Jack is queer and the doctor's reaction is, yeah, so? That was the moment for me where I said, this is a show that I can get behind. They bought some loyalty from me with that because you can always have a queer character on a genre show who is marginalized or who is clearly an outsider. You can always have a queer character on a show who is the outlier, the sign of deviancy, the alien thing to which everyone else is normal. When the doctor and the companion both accept Jack's queerness as, yeah, so, that is the sign to all the viewers that their entry characters into the show, their points of identification of the show, the characters they want to be like, the characters they want to be with, if those characters are all happy enough that Jack is queer, that is a sign that the people who are, that, that the show is intentionally including queerness as being on the inside of the show that you are supposed to view them as like you. If the doctor and Rose say, yeah, Jack is like us. We may not be queer, but he is like us. He is not the alien that we exclude over there. Then you are saying that to all of your viewers that this is a show that will honor queerness. And yes, they screw up. Absolutely. But that was the moment in the show that bought my goodwill for the 
next few seasons. <laughs> now, uh, three <laughs> of the four of you came into the show um, through the new series. Uh, I believe that includes you, Eric. Um, right? You were you were aware of the you were aware of the classic series, but if I remember correctly, this was you you chose a fandom. You chose to be part of the community with the new series. Am I right, Eric? That is that is completely correct. Yeah, no, I have long-standing familial connections to Doctor Who, but they had uh, essentially died on the vine with the cancellation of the series and my getting older and moving away from home and things like that. And then the new series happened. So the 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 spotlight then slowly turns in the direction of Michael, who yes, is a I, bit of a veteran. Yes, I I would be the the old person with the the entirely dull story that all Americans have of. Of my generation of, of finding Doctor Who on public broadcasting in, in when I was a kid, you know, about 10 or 11, and then staying with it forever and ever and ever. As, as Paul Cornell says, Doctor Who isn't really a fandom. It's, much, it's, it's a lifestyle choice. <laughs> and certainly in my world, it, it became that. Uh, Doctor Who was something that, as a kid, watching it in the middle of the night, you know, because in Chicago, it was, it was broadcast at a... 11 p.m. and I was staying up late on school nights and he was a character that because we moved around a lot and I had trouble and, and I, I, I related to him as being that outsider that different character that so, someone who was smart and, and a pacifist sort of and you know witty and 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 felt a, a moral obligation to do the right thing wherever he was and 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 I stayed with it and I stayed you know I left during my 20s when I did things that people do in their 20s and you know came back with the Paul McGann movie and during the wilderness years and started to to read the books and and become part of the, the fandom so I was there when the series came back and, and and definitely had different way of looking at it than the people who've come in with the new series right so how did that intersect with your with your identity with your sense of identity um, and you, you, uh, there are a few people in queers dig time Lords who talk about the otherness of the doctor and how uh, how it was either comforting to them or it was a vessel that they could put themselves into? Um, how did how did the show intersect with you? Well, I, I think you nailed it with the classic series. One of the beauties or problems, depending on how you want to look at it, is that because they did so much to remove sexuality from the doctor and his companions, they they essentially create a blank slate. With the character, that, that was a part of their lives we didn't see, we didn't understand, which meant anyone could kind of project whatever they wanted onto that. And you, and you see that throughout the book. People who started with the old series, some will come and say, I see nothing that was queer in this series. It was just an action show, and the doctor was beating up Ogrons, and it was awesome. And other people were like, no, I completely got the subtext. And there were all these things with, with Turlo and his tight Speedos, and it was wonderful. And for me, I, I don't think I really thought of it in a sexualized way, but it, I think it did comfort me to know that an other could be a hero, that you didn't have to conform to everything that was, and, and, and a few other essayists were like that. You know, and the interesting thing with the news series was in, in many sense, a lot of things that were subtextual for so many people suddenly became text. And then you had to accept it or not accept it based on that. And uh, and and people and, and people argued fiercely over the text. Uh, a couple of other uh, essays in this book that are really interesting to me that I want to uh, point out. Uh, Paul Mars leads off, 
and he says something that the as as our friend Deb Stanish would say, um, the, the devoted brethren, um, the old school conservative uh, Doctor Who fans would just be livid about this notion that Paul Mars calls Doctor Who a camp show. Later on in another essay, Paul Cockburn so, so, so disagrees uh, that Doctor Who is a camp show. Not that I'm for a moment suggesting that the Doctor... This is Paul Cockburn. Uh, not that mm-hmm. I'm for a moment suggesting that the Doctor's penchant for somewhat eccentric pseudo-Edwardian outfits was a blatant sign of the show's inherent campness that enthralled me as a child. I don't get camp. I don't like camp. I'm not comfortable with camp. You go back to uh, you go back to Paul Mars, and he's talking about the Mara, and um, and you know, I, I I love how so many different people who watch Doctor Who and who um, think about it so deeply enough as to contribute essays uh, come from so see such different things. It 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 really is remarkable, and it does speak to the quality of the book as well as the um, the ability of people to read in what they want to read into it. Part of it, as Michael said, is that uh, due to certain um, doyalist uh, influences on the show as to how it was created and when it was created and the circumstances under which it was written and performed, there is a blank slate quality to many scenes, moments, and characters in the in the, the show. And I've gone back now as a fan and watched a lot of the older episodes, um, and there's a certain, like, okay... Now I understand that they probably filmed it that way because it was the ninth take on a day, the last day of shooting, and they had no more budget. But at the same time, what were they doing there? Um, But the other thing I think comes into some of that contradictory experience of the show is the length of the canon. When there is so much canon and there are so many people involved in making a show, you're going to get contradictory elements and you can choose to accept some and ignore some or you can choose as a fan to try to reconcile them all into some grand overarching fanish theory and different people have different approaches and tolerances for that ambiguity. There's one other essay uh, that I really liked uh, on page 214, uh, Susan Jane Bigelow. Same old me, different face, transitioned, regeneration, and change. Uh, Susan is someone who uh, transitioned uh, from male to female. Uh, talks about a story that she'd heard where there was a transgender woman trying to explain her transition to a geeky but otherwise clueless friend. Nothing she tried could really convey what she was going through to him until she described it in terms he could grasp. It's like I'm the doctor, she said, except I'm regenerating into a woman. His eyes lit up. He got it then. Um, I, I like that piece, and I also like how um, I was one of the I was one of the fans who didn't get upset over David Tennant's portrayal of the Doctor as he's getting ready to regenerate, mourning his loss. When a lot of uh, traditional Doctor Who fans were like, "Oh, come on, we're just changing actors; it's something new, no big deal." And Susan writes about her happiness in making the transition, but also her sorrow over um, saying goodbye to something. And I thought that that, I thought that, that was uh, affecting. Um, Michael and Sigrid, any other essays that you want to call out? Um, you know, they're, they're all your children, but are there a, are, are there a couple other essays that uh, you're uh, particularly proud of uh, having in this collection? Well, I, w- I was very happy with, uh, with uh, Rachel Sorsky's piece, which I thought was a very, you know, clever metafictional thing. And I thought that just kind of, did phenomenal things with the text that that made me very giddy it was very giddy to have rachel do that 
I, I loved what Hal Duncan did. You know, I loved how he was able to balance his anger at what he saw to be kind of the crap aspects of Doctor Who and also learning to kind of love it, even against maybe his judgment at times. You know, and I thought that was a really great essay. Um, I'm absolutely in love with Amal's essay, uh, Amal Amaltar's essay, which follows Paul Cochran. One, one of the great things about being able to put together the book was that, you know, we could put essays in order where things could kind of play off each other. So I love how Paul Cochran can talk about how John Pertwee is so heterosexual and the show is not camp. And this is, you know, serious action man show. And then Amal can go on at great length about all the delicious subtext between the doctor and the master and how sexualized everything was, even in a kinky BDSM way. Sigurd? I personally really liked, um, I'm looking for the title of it now, Jennifer Palanz in Praise of Mature Women or Why oh. Donna Noble and River Song Totally Need to Call Me. Uh, I, I just... <laughs> I thought that was I thought it was hilarious, um, and uh, and raised some really good points about some of the companions in the in the current run. I also really uh, liked Amal's subtext: the Doctor and the Master's firsts and lasts, uh, particularly because she did a really nice job drawing on the the old who, and uh, I think a lot of people who slash the Doctor and the Master are basing it on their new Who characterization, and I appreciate that she managed to, to take a look at that. The other one I really liked was Nigel Fair's My Straight Best Friend, mm -hmm. because it was a look at the depth and passion of Doctor Who fandom and people's relationship to the show that I, before I had started editing the, the book, had no no knowledge of, and I thought it was touching, and um, I also really liked Susan Jane Bigelow's Same Old Me, Different Face. I thought the metaphor of uh, her experience, using the Doctor as a metaphor for, for her experience was, I too had that, when she started, when I started reading the essay for the first time, I thought, yes, and I thought, you know, I, I wondered if some of the other uh, transgender people who I've known, if any of them had started watching the new Doctor Who and if they lit on this metaphor before, because I thought that's perfect, that's wonderful, and I, I just really appreciated it. But there was also a nice strain of love stories, and 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 the, you know, and the, I know we kind of focused on you know the more meaty academic. Let's take things apart, but I really love things like you know, you know Emily Asher Perrin's essay about her discovering, you know, cosplay with her roommate and then both them kind of discovering that actually they were in love this whole time, you know, and, and I loved, you know, Melissa Scott's gorgeous essay oh. about, yeah, you know, yeah. falling in love with her partner and, yeah. you know, through Doctor Who and, you know, and then going through it together, you know, her partner's passing and, and, and watching the new series and thinking, oh, she would have loved this, you know, and, and the, so, you know, a lot of the in Jason Tucker had another love story, and there was a, one of the neat yeah there was one of the neat things about this essay was this whole book and the essays within were how many were were just love stories about people who found each other or found something because of this series or because of the fandom around the series, and then could connect that way and then and and discover other things about each other. Okay, I'd like to wrap things up with uh, one final topic, and that's simply, 
what the four of you uh, think about how the show's going right now. At the time of recording, we're on the verge of the last episode of Series 7B, so we're about to wrap up with uh, the uh, first round of Matt Smith and Jenna Louise Coleman stories. If you've been able to watch these uh, episodes as they've been coming out, have you been satisfied with them um, from a representational standpoint as well as just, you know, has it been good storytelling? I think from a representation, I'm oh, sorry. Um, I think from a representational standpoint, there has been a sharp and noticeable drop off under the Moffat era um, with the strong exception, very strong exception, obviously, of Madame Vastra and Jenny, um, who tick all sorts of boxes. But there's, uh, I would like to see, because uh, during the OTD eras, you would just have supporting characters who randomly showed up who were something who who uh somehow queer fans could identify with on screen and um and it doesn't seem that that's been quite as strong and interwoven in Moffat's era certainly in the past year or so as it has been that said I'm currently willing to cut Stephen Moffat a lot of slack because while we haven't seen it yet the both the 30th anniversary special, which will be coming in the fall, and this Saturday's episode, The Name of the Doctor, promise to be giant in a lot of ways. And if he pulls those off, it's, it's, it, it goes back to that, you know, when you love the thing you love, do you nitpick the things you don't like about it? Or do you poke giant holes in the thing you love? Or do you let it go? And if he makes me happy with those, all will be forgiven for at least a little while. Any other takers? I'm not quite caught up, so I'm going to pass. Sigrid, are you caught up? or? Oh, I'm caught up. <laughs> Do you have feels? Do you have opinions? I, I feel it coming from you. No, no. I, um, I, I frequently tell people who are extremely het up about uh, some aspect of a Fanish property that is ongoing, I frequently apologize and say, and I know I said this before, but I have been a comic book fan for way too long. This too shall pass. <laughs> there, it, it's an ongoing show. If something bothers you, wait three years. It'll be different. Um, so I have, I happen to actually really like the current season. I am thoroughly enjoying it. I am not incredibly invested in it. If you want to hear me become a crazy tinfoil hat wearing fangirl ask me about once upon a time but don't do it on this podcast <laughs> uh, I don't have those feels about Doctor Who I really we need to do another podcast I'm with you we're going to be at WizCon Marianne um, and I am going to be throwing a party with shots so find me alright um, but Doctor Who I think that they're, I'm hoping that they are doing something very clever with Clara Oswin Oswald. Uh, I think that Jenna Louise Coleman is doing a really stellar job of what is a thankless task, which is to play a cipher. She's doing a great job of playing the cipher foil for the doctor's investigations. And I... I'm thrilled with how she is pulling that off because I think it is hard. I think it is thankless. And I think that it can be incredibly poorly done. So I'm really, really happy with her. 
That said, watching the diaper, the the doctor interact with a cipher character, if you don't care about the resolution of that mystery, there's not a lot you're going to care about um, in terms of the overarching plot. If you're not incredibly invested in what the doctor's real name is or whether or not they're actually going to answer that question, because I have been a comic book fan for too long, I can't believe they're actually going to answer it in some real way. I just think, yeah, 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 okay, whatever, Jean Grey's dead again. Um, <laughs> so It's, it's I, Logan. I, it's Logan. He's James Howlett now. Yeah, whatever. Um, <laughs> so, yes, I really like the season. But part of the reason I like the season is that I don't care enough to be angry at the season. I've noticed a distinct drop-off in representation of people of color in meaningful roles. Uh, I had issue with the second-to-last episode, I think it was. Of the TARDIS. Yeah, I had some issues with that. I'm like, hmm, okay. I see what you're trying to do there, uh, but a swing and a miss. Um, and I agree with what Eric said about gay representation. I don't think – I think that Madame Vastra and Jenny on the show are a throwback to ways science fiction shows have previously handled queer characters, which is they are always on the edge of things. However cool they may be, they're on the edge of things and they're not – in the heart of the show. And I'm like, okay, whatever. But like I said, uh, I'm really, I'm enjoying the season. I'm looking forward to this coming episode and I'm glad it's airing before Wiscon. So I'll have a chance to see it and go to Wiscon with that in mind. So Michael. No, I, I think that you and Eric pretty much covered my, it's, it's very hard. I, reviewers talk about how easy it is to write really great reviews or really awful reviews. But the, the hardest is when something is just kind of average. And, and and to me, that's what this season 7B has been. It's just been, yeah, that's a Doctor Who episode. Yay, Doctor Who. And I do love every Doctor Who episode. And there's always a part of me that is gleeful that we have Doctor Who back. Nothing this in these last few episodes has extremely resonated with me. Nothing has really ticked me off. Um, let's go back to the queerness. Yes, in the Moffat era, we have seen definitely, as Eric's point on sort of pointed out, a, a downplaying in just having random characters show up and just be queer or even a much more subtextual doctor or a companion other than Amy flirting with herself, which is, yeah. So overall, you know, 7B, yeah, it's, I, I can't have, I have no strong feelings about it, Chip. A quick word back what you just said about subtext, Michael. Yes. I think that since the show has started including queerness as text, I think the writers are being more careful to m make sure they don't accidentally include subtext. The one sole solitary advantage of the massive closeting of queer representation <laughs> up to about 1998 in popular culture was that there was subtext everywhere and nobody stopped it because nobody saw it except the people it was aimed at. Um, uh, and yes. I, I Wait, I have... I have to tell you guys, this is the first convention I ever went to. I was 10 years old, so this was in 1981. It was a Star Trek mini-con. My dad dropped me off for a couple hours because it was Star Trek. I wandered up to the dealer's area, and there were these boxes under the table. And I sat down and started paging through, and it was Kirk slash Spock porn. Um, <laughs> fan porn, fan-made porn. <laughs> It was quite an education and may have permanently affected the rest of my life. So, um, so. 
<laughs> so yay subtext and oh, that's, what that's fans fantastic. do with it. So. Oh. oh my goodness. And on that note, <laughs> on that note, it is, it, this has been running for about an hour and uh, my my listeners are typically used to two minutes or thereabouts, and so I need to probably save them. But this has been a great conversation. I've enjoyed thoroughly having all four of you here, and I am so happy to um, have read and wholeheartedly recommend Queer's Dig Time Lords as an important missing chapter in uh, writing about Doctor Who, and um, it's it's... It's just top to bottom, a great collection. Um, congratulations to Sigrid and Michael, and a thank you to Eric, and a hooray for Marianne and Jed for contributing to it. Um, thank you all so much for being part of this podcast, talking about this great book. How can people get it, Sigrid and Michael? They can pre-order uh, through the usual Amazon Barnes & Noble suspects, and I believe... Uh, Local booksellers should be able to acquire it for you, Michael. Yes, you, you, yes, you can get it at any any bookseller can order it for you, and you can also get it through specialty dealers. You know, as many of us know in the Doctor Who community, like Who and A will have it, Alien Entertainment will have it. It will be at conventions, and of course, anyone who can make it to Madison uh, during Memorial Day weekend, we are going to have a Queers Day Time Lords launch party on Friday night, and we are going to have a panel and a reading. And there'll be many contributors there if you like getting people to scribble in your books. So we hope to see as many of you as possible in Madison. Buy this book, read this book, adore this book. Uh, Michael Thomas, Sigrid Ellis, Marianne Mohan Raj, Eric Stadnick, thank you all for being with me on this podcast. Thank, thank you, you. Thank you, Chip. The Two Minute Time Lord podcast typically runs much closer to its stated time. More episodes are at TWOMinuteTimeLord.com. I'm on social media at numeral 2 minute time lord And coming soon, my reaction to The Name of the Doctor. <laughs>